world we know is gone. No Google, no Amazon.com, no email, no podcasts. In a world ruled by the dead, we are finally forced to start living. Dead TV Podcast Episode 3. My name is John. I have with me on this not-so-lovely evening Mr. Jordan from Jersey and Jim Dietz. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? Hey, John. How are you? Fantastic. On our first try at this recording, we discussed the weather, and then we realized we hadn't hit record, so we're just going to skip that part. Instead, we are going to get right to the Walking Dead talk. We have a great show for you. We have some surprises that we'll get to in a little bit, but first I am going to pass it over to Jim for a little zombie news. It's a zombie news flash. <laughs> a slow moving news flash. Yeah, yeah. Zombies do not like fast food. Um, as everyone knows, Pittsburgh is zombie town, USA. George Romero started the zombie craze here with Night of the Living Dead back in 1968. Um, we are the zombie town. Um, for uh, five years now, we've been doing this will be the fifth annual zombie walk on 10 10 10, October 10th, 2010. Uh, up until last year, the zombie walk took place in Monroeville Mall, where the uh, original Dawn of the Dead was filmed. Uh, but last year, we had so many people show up that it outgrew the mall. It literally filled the entire mall. So this year, the uh, zombie walk is going to be at Point Stake Park in downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, there's going to be food and fun. There's going to be a, um, a food drive if you want to bring canned goods for the Pittsburgh Food Bank. Um, there are going to be live bands, including Deathmobile and the Cynics. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun uh, for kids and, uh, and adults. And everybody's going to be dressed up with their brains hanging out. Uh, as zombies, and we'll of course get together for the big zombie picture, so we can hold on to the world's record of the largest gathering of zombies in the world. So Pittsburgh Zombie Town USA, come on out for the fifth annual zombie walk. It's brought to you by the It's Alive Show, which is kind of uh, I, I know a lot of like New York and Cleveland and Pittsburgh. You have the uh, the horror movie host. They show the bad horror movies. Uh, fortunately, we still have one in Pittsburgh, and the, the guys from the It's Alive Show put together the zombie walk every year, and it's. Uh, you know, they raise a lot of food and awareness for the food bank, and it's a, it's for charity, and it's a lot of fun. It's a great excuse to put on a bunch of makeup and stumble around and scream brains with the you know, thousand, two thousand other people dressed the same way. So, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, ten, 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 October tenth, twenty ten, uh, it's going to be starting around uh, ten in the uh, morning. It'll be going on until sundown. The Pittsburgh Zombie Walk. Come check it out. That sounds freaking awesome. I know last year was a blast uh, at the mall. Uh, again, they had the bands and they had, you know, some uh, vendors and food vendors. And um, there's a giant toy store in the Monroeville Mall called Time and Space Toys, and they're one of the big sponsors. And they, you know, had giveaways. And I'm sure a lot of that'll be going on. And just moved down to the park. There'll be a lot more room for everybody to shamble around and you know look for fresh brains to eat. So uh, yeah, Sunday the tenth. Uh, if you're if you're in the area, come on down. I'll be down there after right after brunch. Right after the zombie brunch at the Gypsy Cafe. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and uh, unfortunately, I guess. Well, I guess I guess not. Unfortunately, because if you're in the New York area, you're not in the Pittsburgh area, so you wouldn't be able to do both either way. Uh, but at the New York Comic Con on Sunday, October 10th, same day as the Zombie Walk, 
AMC has announced that they will have a Walking Dead panel uh, at the convention just for the AMC television show, which is really awesome. We knew there'd be some Walking Dead content at the Image panel, uh, and Robert Kirkman will be there as well. But for the television show panel, they're going to be showing uh, – we got an email from them um, – over at AMC, and they're going to be showing some footage that hasn't been seen yet. Frank Darabont's going to be there. Robert Kirkman's going to be there. Pretty much the whole cast will be at the um, at the panel as well. So that sounds really cool. So anybody that's going down to the Comic Con in Manhattan this weekend, if you can check out the Walking Dead panel Sunday uh, afternoon, I believe it's at two thirty. Uh, you can check that out. And another cool thing is, along with that press release. AMC sent us a behind-the-scenes sizzle reel, as they call it in the in the business of television and movies, I guess. Uh, it's a really cool behind-the-scenes video of the AMC show. You have Robert Kirkman kind of narrating you through some of the uh, filming and, and different things going on. He starts off, you, you kind of zoom in on like a pile of dead bodies, and then like it turns out Robert Kirkman's sitting underneath them. And he's like, hi, I'm Robert Kirkman, the creator of The Walking Dead. So that's pretty cool. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's not around, like, everywhere. I haven't seen it popping up on, like, all of the major news and comic sites. But if you check out hhwlod.com or walkingdeadtv.com, we have it up there. So check it out. It was a lot of fun. And I look forward. I am going to be at the con uh, and I, I'm going to try to make it out to that Sunday afternoon. I really can't pass it up, but I don't know if anybody wants to call my wife and break it to her that I'll be at the con two days all day. That would probably well, help. I know modesty prevents you from mentioning this, but you're going to be at that podcasting panel on Friday as well, aren't you? Oh, that's correct. Yeah, we. you know what? We've done a terrible job of promoting that. Friday at 6.30 at the New York Comic Con is the Podcasting 101 panel. And apparently somebody has mistaken me for somebody who knows what they're doing in podcasting, and I will be one of the speakers of the panel. So come down and ask questions and hear how to make podcasts magic or yell at me and, and curse. Johnny M. The M stands for magic man. That's correct. That was my secret until just now. Uh, Jordan, you have something for before we get started with the festivities? Uh, yeah, I got a couple of things. Uh, first off, in general, Walking Dead news, um, in kind of a huge move that wasn't really publicized at all, Walking Dead went day and date with digital comics. Now, for those of you out there who don't know what that means, eventually comics are going to be mostly digital, just like everything else. You know, Yes, some of us like to have that physical book in our hands or the physical disc to put in a player or whatever, but for many people and people on the go, it's just easier if you have a digital version of something well with issue i believe 78 which came out this past week people realize that hey the digital version is available at the same exact time at the same price so there was no press release about it uh, originally there's nothing like that it just kind of people figured it out but from this point on and kirkman said he kind of wants to do this with all of his comics if it's out in the stores it's out digitally you can get it both places same price and uh that's kind of awesome because not a lot of comic companies are doing that yet and for kirkman to be leading the way on that one uh, that's pretty neat yeah, definitely. What, what's been the wait time usually on new comics? Like a month or a few weeks? It really depends what company you're talking about. I mean, and, and what comic even. Sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's a month, sometimes it's not yet at all. Um, I'm I know not a, sure lot exactly. the Marvel, a lot of the Marvel stuff is at least six months, uh, if not longer. 
uh, before it ends up on their digital comics unlimited site. Right. So, I mean, uh, eventually it'll all be probably day and date with all comics, probably. Um, but Walking Dead's one of the first to do it day and date right now. So that's, that's really neat. And then our other piece of news is, uh, as you know, we're part of the Walking Dead Podcast Network, which you can find at forumforgeeks.com. That's forumforgeeks.com. We have a fourth podcast in the network. We are joined by Zombie Drill Podcast, and that joins us, the Walking Dead TV Podcast, the Walking Dead Cast, and the Talking Dead Podcast. So right now, if you want any news, any podcast, any discussion about the Walking Dead and your lame friends don't want to talk with you about it, you can just check out forumforgeeks.com. Get all the links, download all the shows, and uh, all the discussion takes place in one place, so you don't have to have multiple browser windows open or actually do any difficult work. We've done it all for you. Very cool. Okay, so for episode three, we are we have a little bit of an interview extravaganza. I'm going to turn this over to Jordan, and he's going to talk about an interview that he had with Bear McCreary, the composer for The Walking Dead television show who's also done some other great stuff but I'll, I'll let you hear the interview for all that and then we are going to run our Robert Kirkman interview uh, which the, we had him on the Legion of Dues while we were talking about the Walking Dead books um, he talked about some other stuff it, it was a great interview it ran about a year ago I would say at this point and the television show had just been announced so we do touch on the television show a little bit it's more about the Walking Dead comic uh, but great interview anyway, so we figured we would include that as well. So, Jordan, why don't you give us a little bit of a lead-in to your interview? Yeah, uh, I got to speak to Mr. Bear McCreary just a few days ago uh, and discuss his his process and some of the different shows he's worked on. Most of you probably know him from Battlestar Galactica, but he's done a lot of great work in TV, movies, and even some video games. We didn't really get a chance to talk about the video games, but you can check out his whole, not discography is not the right word, but his entire his entire library of works. He's done a ton of great stuff and really excellent music. I personally really love uh, the Human Target soundtrack that he's done, and uh, we get to talk about that some, including the, the disc, which is coming out very soon and I'm very excited about. But if you are interested in music whatsoever... Or if you like music and TV shows, if you just, oh, that's a really catchy theme, this is a great interview for you because uh, we get to discuss all that kind of stuff in detail. Okay, so here is Jordan's interview with Bear McCreary. So we're joined tonight by Mr. Bray McCreary, who is the composer for many fine shows, including Battlestar Galactica, Eureka, Terminator the Sarasana Chronicles, Human Target. Uh, he did the soundtrack or the score for Step Up 3D, and he's going to be doing The Walking Dead starting on Halloween this year. So thank you for joining us tonight, Mr. McCreary. Absolutely. Now, to many, if not most of our fans, you're probably most well known for Battlestar Galactica. Can you just tell me a little bit about how you started uh, on that show? Yeah, well, uh, Battlestar Galactica was my first job. Basically, it was my first scoring job that I ever got. I, I had done a lot of student films and a lot of independent films. I mean, maybe not a lot by some uh, standards, and, but I, I was very young when I got the show, and I had an opportunity there to kind of, you know, prove myself and do something interesting, and I really loved the show. So I used it as a chance to, um, you know, really do something special and, and really put a lot of put a lot of time and energy into that show and I was very happy that a lot, so many people responded to the series and, and to my work on it and it, and it really in many ways launched my, my professional career. 
Now, you had a very uh, distinct sound on the show um, that many of us can, can immediately call to mind. But you actually started working on the show as a collaboration. Is that correct? Uh, that is almost correct. I, I wouldn't call it a collaboration necessarily. I, <clears throat> I was the assistant for Richard Gibbs, who was the composer. It was totally – I mean, he scored the miniseries, and I, I, was, I helped him. Um, but collaboration is uh, probably not the right word. But, yes, we – the soul of what you're saying is, is true. And how is that different than just doing it yourself? I mean, what, what kind of things does the assistant to the main composer actually do um, in a miniseries such as that? Uh, well, it's hard to say because I, I can't speak in generalities. I can only speak in what I did on Battlestar. In that particular case, I, I had worked with Richard for about a year, maybe a little more than a year, at the time he did the Battlestar miniseries. And it required a huge amount of music to be written in a very short period of time. So I started out helping him do some of the some of the action cues while he was writing a lot of the thematic material. And with that miniseries in particular, the sound of what they wanted was so dark you had this vision of avoiding typical sounding orchestral music. Uh, so it just required a lot of different drafts and a lot of versions. And so I worked very closely with Richard and very closely with the producers and in helping them figure out what it is with the percussion in particular that they wanted to do. And then after the miniseries, I, I took over as the, as the series composer when it, when it became a regular series. And uh, at that point, you know, I was able to expand upon a lot of these ideas and really take the show in, in new directions, which is where it needed to go, because, of course, the series was, in fact, very different than the miniseries in, in terms of its scope and the number of characters. And it was just a much deeper and broader experience, and so it needed a lot more musical material. So I was able to incorporate instruments from around the world. We started bringing in, we started off with a lot of, a lot of taiko drums and, and a, a little sprinkling of some Middle Eastern sounds. I brought in a lot of Middle Eastern sounds and woodwinds. Um, I brought in a lot of new um, stringed instruments like the electric fiddle and the air who and um, the biwa and the koto. And I brought in rock and roll elements and I brought in Italian opera and music and Gaelic music and heavy metal and Indian music. And really, Battlestar was, was, was really a cornucopia of style. And so it, for that, it was, um, it was a real challenge to be able to make all those sounds come together and yet still make it sound like Battlestar Galactica. You know, you didn't want it to just sound like a, a big mess of various instruments. It really needed to have its own sound. So, and and, and I, I believe for the most part it really did. Now, moving on real quick to Eureka on Sci-Fi, you came into that show in Season 2, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. And then with Terminator the Saracana Chronicles on, uh, on Fox, you had three films uh, before that of, of musical cues and musical themes. How, how much deference do you give when there's established material and established, established sound? And how much do you feel free to, to go off on your own and create new cues and new themes? Well, it absolutely must be a case-by-case basis. With Battlestar, uh, I was told very specifically to avoid sounding like traditional science fiction, <clears throat> i.e. the original Battlestar Galactica, at all costs. And we did that. I mean, the music doesn't sound anything like what Stu Phillips wrote in the 1970s. However, I did find a few places to homage to that material. And, and in fact, in the finale, I won't spoil it, but in the finale of, this, of the series, there's one sequence in particular that is so powerful and so beautiful. And, and it was the kind of thing that as a composer, you just 
you dream of having a sequence this this amazing. And I scored it using the original Stu Phillips theme from the 70s because I knew that it would resonate deeply with fans and that it would resonate with me. I, I, I really wanted to pay homage to what Stu Phillips had done. And um, I don't know, I felt like, you know, I felt like it was the right thing to do. In the case of Eureka, um, I, there's, there's a theme song that's written by Mark Mothersbaugh. I think of it as the theme song for the show, but not, it, it's not really functional as any character's theme song. And I also thought that in, in this first season of the show, which I did not score, that the composers overused that theme and, and, and uh, it just kind of beats you over the head with it. So when I came on board the show, the idea that I pitched them was, let's expand this musical universe, because you can do that on TV. You can, you can continue to develop the music as the, as the series develops. And so with Eureka, I brought in a whole bunch of new sounds and new instruments, and I wrote character themes for each character, and really just tried to make the, the sound of the show a little more sophisticated and interesting, because it's a sophisticated and interesting show. As with the case of Terminator... That one was the exact opposite because I fully and intentionally embraced the sounds of the first two Terminator films, which I felt were canon to the show. Um, if anything, the show was a more authentic sequel to Terminator 2 than any of the other feature films that followed. And I wanted, I wanted to clue fans into that. I, I wanted to acknowledge that everyone who worked on the Sarah Connor Chronicles was a huge Terminator fan and felt a lot of love for those first two movies. And so I knew right away that the music had to sound right. And with that said, I wasn't just emulating Brad Fidel's music. I, I wrote my own original themes, and I, wrote, I brought in a, a lot of unique instruments, uh, an, electric, an electric string quartet and a bunch of metallic percussion and stuff like that that was unique to the Sarah Connor Chronicles, but I still felt like its heart and its soul were always rooted in the Brad Fidel scores. I, I, um, I certainly didn't, didn't try to hide it in any way. So it really depends, you know, on what project you're working on, whether or not you try to reinvent the wheel or create something new. Well, as a person working in a creative medium, do you prefer having a slight basis to work off of, or do you prefer a, a blank slate to begin with? Uh, again, there's, there's no preference. Probably I would prefer to have a blank slate unless the previous material is something I feel strongly about. I mean, again, going back to those obvious examples, with Terminator, it wasn't the producers forcing me to use those sounds. I, in my very first meeting with them, I said, this is what I want this show to sound like. And as a fan of Terminator, I'll be really angry if you guys mess this up. You know, and in the case of Eureka, I thought there was some other material that I could that I could bring to the show. You know, and the producers agreed with me. So it really depends. You know, um, I always like to I always like to invent my own palette, my own themes, and my own ideas. But of course, if I'm working on a project that has music that is already associated with it, and, and I think that music has something to offer, and it's something that you know hasn't been explored with it yet, then by all means, you know, let's let's play with it. Now, this past year, you were nominated for an Emmy for your score for Human Target. Would you like to talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. No, Human Target was an incredible experience. Um, I, I, think that, I think that anybody who has ever listened to soundtracks would, would just love this music. I mean, it, 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 Human Target is my homage to the film composers that I grew up listening to and that inspired me to write music in the first place. So unlike... Battlestar and Sarah Connor, which have a very contemporary, dark, percussive, brooding kind of sound. Human Target is just sort of 
joyous orchestral music. It's very much in the style of my heroes, Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein, uh, Basil Polidorus, Alan Silvestri, John Williams, uh, Bernard Herrmann, Ennio Morricone. Uh, these are the guys that I always wanted to be when I was growing up. And the fact that I had a full live orchestra at my disposal every week, we actually had the largest orchestra in the history of series television uh, on Human Target. And, and so every week I was able to produce uh, a feature film tour, a full-length feature film tour. It was, a, it was an, an extraordinary opportunity. And I'm very excited that uh, we have a soundtrack album coming out um, next month. And on October 5th, the uh, iTunes release of the Human Target soundtrack goes up. And uh, But the fans that really want the full experience should wait till October 19th and get the CD set that's coming out which is a three-CD set, which has uh, almost an hour's worth of additional music on it. Uh, it's, it's nearly four hours of, of kick-ass orchestral music, and that's coming out from La La Land Records. And uh, it's just really exciting. I mean, it was, it was a thrill to be involved in that show. And, of course, the Emmy nomination was great because it, it did remind us that we were doing something that was resonating with people and that, and that people were responding to. So I was you know, very honored that the, uh, that the Academy would, would recognize my work in that way. Well, I must say, as a fan of the show and especially of the music, there's been many an hour I have procrastinated doing actual work while having the theme song stuck in my head. So I, I blame you for that. But um, it is. Oh, well, that's good. Then you'll be, you'll be in trouble when the album comes out because it'll be stuck in your head for weeks. Well, I'm very happy to hear about the release date because I've been looking around online and had not been able to find anything on that. So thank you for that uh, bit of information. I'm looking forward to that yeah. immensely. Now, seeing as you're going on to two brand new shows this fall, are you interested in seeing where people take the music cues you created in Human Target next season? Or are you just kind of going to watch it just for the show and the show alone? It's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, personally, I, I, Human Target, is, it was a wonderful experience. And I wish whoever takes over the best of luck. But I probably won't be following the music too closely um, just because I, you know, I spent... I spent so much of my passion and time and energy on that first season score. So that's kind of, from my experience, where Human Target is probably going to end. Now, you've spoken several times about uh, the amount of time that goes into episodes of the various shows you've worked on. Do you normally have a, a similar amount of time per episode to work on across different shows, or does it vary widely between shows how much time you're given? Well, the, the, the common theme is I never have enough time, but... In actuality, it does fluctuate wildly. I mean, it really depends on the schedule that the show keeps. So, for example, well, let me, let me, let me generalize in this way. Uh, the music is the last thing to get finished. So when you set out to make a film or a TV show, you make a schedule and you make a budget. And you try to, you try to get the script done on time. You try to get prep done on time. Then you try to get your, sh you know, your shots done on, each day on time. And then you try to get your cut done in time. Then you try to get your focus group, you know, testing done. And then all these things happen. And then at the end, music happens. Well, the problem is with that setup, under the vast majority of productions, anything that goes over schedule and anything that goes over budget ends up having an impact on the music. Uh, and, and in television, this is true more than any place else because you have your deadlines that you have to make each week. And if the network makes them go back and re-edit an episode because they're not happy with it, or if something goes wrong with production and they lose a week, 
it, it all ends up crunching down the music time. And, and you get those phone calls where, you know, people say, okay, well, you know, you're going to end up with two days to score this whole episode. And, and to do what, what I do, which is all live instruments, professionally mixed and orchestrated and recorded, uh, you know, it can't be done in two days. It's not possible. So, you, you know, you find ways to, to work around this. And uh, sometimes I, I have a week, sometimes I have, sometimes I even have two weeks, depending on what's going on. But in general, I always make sure that I have enough time to do what the episode requires. And, uh, and I've gotten very good about working with producers in scoring rough cuts. I'll score incomplete sequences. I'll score, I won't even, sometimes I won't even have picture. I'll just start writing what I know is going to be coming so that I have enough time to write quality music. Because my philosophy is always that you're better off writing really quality music and then having to find a way to make it fit the picture than waiting until the picture is totally done and writing a bunch of shit. Very interesting. Um, I should put that up on my wall, actually. That'd be a good good little motivational, you know, a picture of a kitten or something. That'd be be a good little motivational poster. All right, let's move on now to uh, the two brand new shows you're going to be working on this fall, or I guess already are working on, uh, and that is the one yeah. we're mostly interested in, The Walking Dead on AMC, and then The Cape on NBC later this fall. When did you first become involved with The Walking Dead, and how did you become aware of the, the series and the comic series? I've been aware of the comic for a long time. Uh, it, it's always been one of, you know, one of my favorite comics of the past 10 years, and um, I was aware that a couple of people were developing it. But actually, I, I, um, I struck up a friendship with Frank Darabont several years ago because he was a big Battlestar, and Battlestar fan, and he still is. And uh, so we've known each other off and on, and, and I've always been looking for an opportunity to work together. So when he got this, when he got this show, he called me in to look at it. I mean, I guess I to read the script, because I was, I was actually hired before they even shot it. Uh, which was cool. It was, an, it was an opportunity to meet everybody early and start thinking about what I was going to do. I had a few months to get my material together so that I could actually do something interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, it was, I think it was mostly my work on Battlestar that, that drew Frank Darabont and Gail Ann Hurd to hiring me, and, and mostly because they appreciated that I did unusual things on Battlestar, and that's what they wanted on Walking Dead. They wanted something out of the ordinary, something that you wouldn't expect to hear. So what things should we expect to not expect to hear uh, starting on Halloween? Well, if I tell you, then you'll expect them. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, let me put it this way. The Walking Dead is a, you know, it's, it's a character piece that happens to take place in a zombie apocalypse. And so what Frank has done and is doing is, is taking a very realistic approach to what is already a very realistic graphic novel series, you know, so it's, there's, there's room for music, but it's not doing the things that music normally does in a horror movie. One of the reasons this is the case is that the show is already so damn scary. I'm, I'll watch these cuts without any music, and I'm literally on the edge of my seat and trying to hold back from throwing up because of the gore. And it's all, so I'm like, I'm, you know, it's already working. I don't need to add a bunch of dissonant atonal orchestral clusters or screaming brass lines to convince you that it's scary, which is one of my pet peeves of modern horror scoring. Although it's really one of the things that bugs me about the genre in general is that I feel like nobody can get scared anymore. So the only thing they can do is rather than make movies scary, they just make them louder. And things get louder and louder and they're just screaming at you all the time. And, and, and I knew Frank wouldn't deliver that. And so once I saw that that wasn't the case, then we could start thinking about, okay, well, what do you want the music to do? 
and we're, you know, you're going to notice that the music is playing, it's commenting more about character issues, more about dramatic issues. It's still really spooky and creepy, but there's, there's, there's more to it than that. And, and also the instrumentation is going to be pretty fun. It's, it's not the kind of typical horror sound that you're used to hearing. So I think people are going to be, I think people are going to be really surprised, uh, really surprised by it and, and are really going to enjoy it. I mean, hopefully, as, as is always the case, you, you don't want them to notice the music. I, I'm, my, my hope is that people are going to be so drawn up in the, the drama and the tension and the suspense, they won't even notice how cool the music is until we put out a soundtrack album one day. <laughs> of course. All right. Thank you, Mr. McCray, for joining us tonight uh, on the Walking Dead TV podcast. Is there anything else aside from the from the Human Target soundtrack coming out in stores soon that you'd want us to be aware of that we should check out? Um, check out my blog, bearmccreary.com slash blog. And later in the year, we're going to have some really cool announcements. I'm going to be trying to get some cheap music together that we're going to sell on the website, maybe a live DVD of some of our Battlestar Galactica concerts. And there'll be more information about the cape and a movie I'm doing with Summer Glau called The Knights of Badassum. There's a lot of exciting stuff coming up, and my, my website is going to be the place to uh, keep current on all that. Awesome. And that website, one more time, is? The website is bearmccreary.com. And can we follow you on Twitter? Uh, yes, you can, actually. I'm, I'm at Bear McCreary, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty good about uh, answering questions on Twitter. So if anybody thinks of any random question to ask me, shoot me, shoot me a, a tweet, and we'll see what happens. All right. Well, we'll be sure to do that. And thank you once again for joining us tonight on the Walking Dead TV podcast. Thanks. Well, we want to thank again Mr. McCreary for coming on and letting us interview him. We also want to thank Beth from InfoSystems and his assistant Kevin for helping set up the entire interview because we couldn't have done it without you and it was really awesome to have him on the show and we hope you enjoyed the interview. Yeah, that was really cool. I don't think about television music uh, as a rule, but now I definitely do and I, I, I always loved the Galactica music and that was like the first time that I was really like, wow, this is a really awesome soundtrack. It was a funny coincidence, I guess, that that turned out to be Bear also. Uh, and now certainly with The Walking Dead, I'll be paying attention a little bit more. That's what I was going to say. I really enjoyed his work on Galactica, so it'll be really cool to see how he shifts gears with something on a totally different tone like The Walking Dead. And I know I'll be at the store's opening, to the opening day to pick up that uh, special three-disc edition of the Human Target score because, oh, it's so good. That music, just I could listen to it forever. So I will definitely be there to pick it up, and so should you. i got to check out that show. It's I, awesome, sir. I tried it out, and I don't know. It, uh, we're going to get way off topic here just real quickly. It, it started out like it was too lighthearted for me. I guess I was looking for like a little more hardcore spy action type thing. I wasn't prepared for like the comedy. Yeah, I mean they, they didn't really get rid of the comedy, but they I think they made it so it all meshed really well uh, towards the end. And season two has been pushed back to a – because Fox had some problems with other shows and they had to cancel them, they've held back Human Target for halfway through the season. So you'll have a little bit extra time to catch up on the first season. Sweet. I'll probably buy the Blu-ray. You'd probably buy the, buy the Blu-ray anyway just because you buy it, buy every Blu-ray. And I can't say buy a Blu-ray either, apparently. <laughs> say that three times fast. Buy a, buy a Blu-ray, 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 buy a Blu-ray. Three times fast. All right, so now we're going to run our Robert Kirkman interview. Uh, once again, that was from a Legion of Dudes show back last year. 
I believe it was episode 73. We also cover all of the Walking Dead hardcovers, um, or a couple of the Walking Dead hardcovers in that show and the following show also. So if you want to check that out, go to legionofdudes.com and uh, you'll be able to find the episode there. So here's our interview with Robert Kirkman. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We are pleased to uh, have Mr. Robert Kirkman on the phone, a creator, image partner, a doodler in your Walking Dead trade paperback, if you uh, so happen to have the luxury of getting on. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. So we thought we'd... Um, First of all, shout out to Philip Soblick over at Top Cow for, and we appreciate him, you know, helping us out and, and getting us together and scheduling this interview with you. Um, That's not necessary, is it? I mean, you don't panic on anything to do dump, do you? I mean, Philip's a nice guy, but uh, I don't want his head to get any bigger than it already is, you know? Yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> so, you, you're current, well, I say current, you've got uh, tons of things going on. Um, I, 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 I would call you probably the hardest working guy in comics these days uh, between your, your regular monthly stuff and then, you know, of course, being an image partner and working on Image United and um, and then the pilot season stuff. You, you've got a lot going on. Too much in one room. So, you know, I don't know. It, it, it's a lot of fun doing uh, various different things and, you know, being able to uh, bounce from uh, project to project during any given day. And it, you know, keeps things fresh. And uh, I certainly like to work. So, uh, you know, it, it's good having work. It beats the alternative, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, something I've noticed a lot lately with writers especially, um, and there's been a real shift from artists to writers, obviously, in the past 10 years or so, but there are a lot of uh, creators now that are um, both working on independent and creator-owned projects and working for the big two, uh, yourself included. I mean, you know, you uh, did uh, that really awesome uh, Destroyer miniseries uh, last year. I, I, really, I really was wondering if, um, you ever, if you think that mutual exclusivity that used to be there is ever going to come back, or I think uh, it just benefits, you know, from everybody being able to do what they want. I certainly, uh, you know, anybody who wants to do what they, people who want to do what they want, I, I say bravo, you know, de definitely do what you want. Um, you know, from my perspective, uh, uh, you know, I'm only doing creator-owned stuff right now. Uh, that Destroyer miniseries that came out last year was, you know, written while I was still at Marvel before I left, and it took a while to come out. But, uh, you know, my main focus right now is, uh, you know, creator own work just because I feel like there aren't enough people doing creator own work. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to be a creator out there that's saying, you know, if, if you would like to do creator own work and you are scared, you know, here I am, I'm out here doing it and, uh, you know, everything's great. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to make an example of myself just to show that, uh, you know, you can have a career by just doing creator own stuff. How do you see that that panning out in the future now with the internet and with uh, internet intellectual property like being so much more important? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know what the future holds. I, I'm hoping that uh, it'll be a little more uh, welcoming to new concepts because uh, you know it is kind of an uphill battle uh, selling something that doesn't have 30 years of history and a and a you know built-in fan base. 
So uh, I'm kind of hoping hoping that, uh, you know, as the market broadens into uh, digital platforms and uh, hopefully that will bring a, a new audience that uh, doesn't necessarily, you know, only buy Marvel and DC books, which, you know, a lot of people do. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we, we're looking at nothing but good things coming at us in the future. I've noticed it more in the last five to six years more than in before, but it seemed like in the late 80s and the 90s, there was such a push on the art, you know, that people would follow, you know, like the McFarlands and, and even, you know, the Silvestris and the Jim Lees and the, and the Alex Rosses. And it seems like in the last few years that at least the buzz that we hear a lot of is people are following writers. They're following people like yourself, like Ed Brubaker, like Matt Frack, you know, and, and, and they're really clinging to the writer, Jeff Johns, you know, um, and focusing more on the stories, I mean, yeah, you know, people still feel art, art is important because it's a, it's a visual medium, but, um, but the fact that there's so much emphasis, it seems, lately on the writer, does, as a writer and creator, how does, I mean, does that kind of boost your ego a little bit? Does that make you feel a little, you know, a little better about what you're doing to know that, you know, there seems to be that kind of a shift going on? Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, certainly nice for me, I guess, um, you know, thinking about it, though, uh, the ideal situation would be a, a balance of importance where, you know, people follow the writers and they follow the artists and they, uh, you know, consider them to be of equal value or whatnot. Um, with the pendulum, you know, swinging high on artist popularity uh, in the past and currently swinging high on uh, writer popularity now, uh, it would be nice if to another phase where, you know, people viewed them equally. Um, I, I certainly appreciate the uh, uh, appraise and acclaim and, uh, you know, the lines at the conventions and stuff, and that's that's all nice and everything. But one thing that really frustrates me is when, uh, uh, you know, I read reviews, and it's like I have no control over it, but, you know, they'll say, you know, oh, Robert Kirkman did this issue of Invincible, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it's it's really kind of frustrating to me because, uh, you know, I don't exactly do that by myself. Uh, and, you know, there's uh, a lot of people online will uh, give the writer credit for something that, you know, the artist uh, uh, more than likely did, knowing how the process of a comic is made. Uh, and I think that's uh, extremely frustrating for artists, and uh, that part of it kind of sucks. But at the same time, I'm not an artist, so I don't really care. Well, it, it seems like, you know, with some of these projects recently, like with Haunt and, you know, Image United and, and of course, the, the pilot season stuff, you've, you've got some pretty strong collaborators working with you, you know, between... You know, Todd McFarlane, of course, Mark Silvestri, who I just, I've I've loved Mark Silvestri's stuff since the first time he put, you know, pencil to paper on an X-Men book, you know, back in the 80s. But, you know, you know Greg Capullo and, and Ryan Otley, who you've, you know, worked for in the past, that must be, be nice as well to, to have such strong collaborators and folks that you're used to working with to, to work on these new projects. So you, you have some familiarity and, and um, I guess, some camaraderie even, you know, with, with these projects, and it's not just you know, folks that you're just kind of being paired with, it seems. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun to uh, work on a book knowing that you can hang back a little bit and let the artist carry the, the book to a certain extent. Um, you know, when I'm writing a haunt plot, knowing that Greg Capullo is going to be doing the page breakdowns uh, and the story and everything, uh, you know, I know I don't necessarily need to, uh, you know, take a lot of time to describe specific things to him because, uh, you know, that's something that he's really good at. And, you know, I kind of let him uh, stretch his wings on that a little bit. So that, that part of it's uh, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, also, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do as many uh, 
heavily visual comics as possible because that's the kind of stuff that I think is neat. I think that uh, the things that I like to write and the things that artists like to draw uh, tend to be the things that uh, readers like to see. Uh, you know, I, I, I like big splash pages and I like cool action scenes and uh, I like comics that move. I like, I like fast-paced stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm not really uh, as into, uh, you know, I've certainly done a, a bunch myself. I'm not trying to knock it or anything, but you know, talking heads comics where guys sit in a room and chat. I've done many issues of Invincible where Invincible and a guy have uh, sat in a chair and uh, sat in one weather and uh, and talked for a good long time. You know, and I've I've heard Ryan Otley complain to me for a month because of it. But uh, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to do more more action stuff now, and so it's cool to be able to work with guys like you know Mark Silvestri and Tom McFarlane and Greg Capullo. If only I could talk Larson into doing a book with me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it must be um, it must be uh, challenging too, trying to write to different artists uh, artists' uh, strengths uh, every time too. Uh, I'm noticing, especially uh, like I with usually the- uh, I usually make it a point to write to their weaknesses just to mess with them. <laughs> make them earn <laughs> it, right? <laughs> so I think uh, I think we'd kind of get it handed to us if we didn't ask you about kind of the upcoming Walking Dead TV show a little bit. I know there was kind of rampant emails back and forth when that announcement was made. We were all kind of like gleeful little kids, you know, kind of finally. Um, so can you tell us a little about a bit about, um, you know, working with Frank Darabont and what you guys are doing to develop that? Uh, yeah, um, Frank Darabont has been polishing the pilot script over the last, uh, you know, few weeks or whatever. And so that's kind of the stage we're in right now. Uh, I can't really say anything definitive because I don't really know anything definitive. As I understand it, uh, you know, everything is moving to pace and, and looking very good. And so I have uh, I have high hopes that the series will, uh, you know, make it to air. But, uh, you know, TV, movie stuff, it's always, uh, it's always kind of a crapshoot as to whether or not it will actually uh, happen. So, you know, I haven't bought my uh, solid gold boat yet, but uh, <laughs> I have one now. So I'm optimistic, but, uh, you know, like I say, it's looking good. I, I, I'm hoping that there will be an official announcement, uh, you know, very soon. Is that at uh, solidgoldboats.com? Is that where I can find that? <laughs> Look, where do you shop for a solid gold boat? I was just wondering. Well, if you're getting a solid gold boat, you're not going to be getting it online. That's You're not going to get a good quality one. It's going to be, you know, 18-karat gold plating or something, and that's just bullshit. <laughs> If you're going to get a solid gold boat, you want a solid gold boat, so, uh, you know, you're going to probably want to get that uh, specially made. That sounds like a good idea. Uh, one of the things we do on the there's Legion... There's a guy here locally. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, there's a guy there locally in Kentucky, really. I'm trying, I'm trying to run the joke into the ground as much as I can, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a hell of a business to be in, because, I mean, you know, you sold one, you'd be set, you know. That's true. <laughs> One of the things we uh, we do on the LOD is uh, go in depth on the graphic novels. Uh, we do uh, it, um, like an issue by issue um, kind of uh, dissection of, of uh, comics, and we've done two episodes uh, now on uh, Walking Dead. Um, it's showing up on a lot of uh, critics' uh, top ten lists, uh, you know, for best comic of the decade. And it's it, again with the um, the TV series uh, behind this, it's getting a lot of uh, attention. And we're just wondering: is what I wanted to ask is, do you have a definite ending? For Walking Dead, is it, or is it just something you can keep writing for, you know, until you're ready to retire on your solid gold boat? <laughs> um, I would never keep it going if I ran out of ideas, but uh, uh, the concept is the zombie movie that never ends, and so you know, 
uh, ending it to me seems kind of dumb. Uh, and also, um, you know, when I when I started the series, I was really excited because I thought I had a concept that I could keep going with and keep entertaining, you know, for a, for a good long time. And uh, you know, I mean, people have been sending in letters since you know issue five came out, going, "Oh, you know, these first five issues were good, but I don't see how you could keep this going for another two years without it getting stale." And so. Uh, you know, I'm kind of proud that you know people still seem to be liking the book, and and it, it still seems to be entertaining, and it hasn't uh, worn out its welcome yet. And so, uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't have like you know issue 75, it's going to be over, or you know issue 150, you know that's when we're going to cap it off. Uh, but you know, I would end it if uh, uh, if I thought it was sucking, you know, if I thought I wasn't doing a good job. I mean, I, but as, as long as I have you know cool ideas for it and as long as I'm feeling good about the series and, and as long as you know it's not you know selling poorly or whatever you know I plan on keeping it going for as long as I possibly can because uh, you know Walking Dead and Invincible are everything that I ever set out to do in comics you know I, I just wanted to have a long run on a book that I could control and do whatever I want with and uh, you know I lucked out and got that in two books and so you know, I, I'm not going to finally get to where I always wanted to be and, you know, stop. That, that's crazy. That, that's Brian K. Vaughn talk. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this thing into the ground. I don't. I don't see any danger of that in the future. I'm, I was glad to hear that um, it was going to be an episodic TV show rather than just like cut down to a movie size. Because I think one of the real strengths of that book is the characters and getting to know them over time. Yeah, and we had offers for, you know, feature films and whatnot, and, you know, I, I just didn't, uh, you know. Then it's just another zombie movie. I mean, what's the point? So we kind of, that, that's one of the reasons it took so long for anything to happen with Walking Dead is because we turned a lot of stuff down, waiting for the right, you know, kind of television deal to prevent it, or to present itself. I know you well, briefly you briefly mentioned Invincible uh, there. I, I know you're building up to a very big storyline that you've been building up to for a long time. Uh, the Invincible War itself was, you know, huge, epic, every character in the Image universe. But uh, the Viltrumite War has been something that's been building up since issue one. Are, are you excited to finally get to that storyline after all this time, after all the different, you know, uh, build-ups and everything? And, and um, again, you know, Invincible, you said, is everything you set out um, to do as a character. Um, is Mark going to grow up a little bit and be, uh, like, move out of the teenage and into the um, adult? Or are you just going to keep him, like, in that Spider-Man zone of, you know, high school age? No, I mean, I think he's already uh, matured quite a bit. I mean, he, he went to college and then quit college, so he's, he, he, he's pretty much an adult at this point, uh, and, and we'll continue pushing things uh, towards that as time goes on. I would never try and age him in real time or anything like that, but uh, there will be a progression to the book, and, you know, the characters will grow old, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we've already seen a lot of changes in Mark uh, uh, so far, and I think that we'll continue to see more. Some of which will be spilling out of the uh, Viltrumite War, which is going to be a big deal. So, uh, and that starts at issue 71, that I think begins in, uh, I think it ships in March. So, so I'm pretty excited. And that's going to be a, a, the, the longest storyline that we've ever done in the book, which I think is fitting since it's, uh, you know, been something that we've been preparing for since the first issue of the series. So, uh, you know, get some cool stuff in it. I think uh, there's going to be some surprises along the way. Space stuff, that's always going to be fun. So... I'm excited. As are we all. One one of the one of our co-hosts couldn't be on today, but he is a huge fan of the Astounding Wolfman, and he well, was obviously uh, not a fan if he couldn't be on today. But you know, 
Well, well, no, trust actually, me. Actually, uh, Robert, he, over hold on. He works uh, teaching uh, a high school to uh, prisoners. Um, so he, he couldn't be. He couldn't break out of jail to be here today. <laughs> yeah. You think I didn't have anything else better to do? <laughs> so anyway, he, yeah, he's a big fan of that book, and he was, you know, kind of disappointed to see it, it go away. And he, his question, I guess, was he was curious: is it is it just kind of the victim of all you have going on, and something kind of having to to you know kind of go to the back burner, or you know kind of go to the wayside, and or is it you know, did you just kind of, did it run its course? Um, I don't know if you could kind of talk about, you know, the, the ending of, of that book. Um, it was kind of, I mean, it was a lot of things. Uh, uh, definitely, you know, my workload and, and my plans for stuff and, you know, being able to do that was uh, a part of it. And um, But also it was... Uh, it, it was a natural story progression that came through, you know, doing the book. Uh, we'd been building up towards a lot of things uh, in the series, and uh, all of those things seemed to, you know, come together uh, in the plotting into one big story. And uh, after that was over, everything was going to be resolved. And so I was sitting there thinking about what to do next, and uh, it kind of occurred to me, uh, you know, you could end this book, which is not something that I've ever really thought of before. And so uh, I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, you know, because Jason and I had been talking about some other projects that we'd like to do. And so, you know, I'll still get to work with Jason, and I'll get to do some new stuff, which is exciting. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, Wolfman will wrap up in a, a huge finale that everyone finds satisfying. And, uh, you know, hopefully win-win situation for everyone. So that, that was kind of the decision process there. And... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess it sucks for anybody that's uh, enjoying the book to see the book come to an end. But, uh, you know, I plan on doing something else that uh, people that enjoy that book will also enjoy. And so I'm not going to be replacing Danger Unlimited with Babe, you know, uh, like <laughs> gotcha. a John Byrne reference. But, uh, gotcha. uh, <laughs> <Got it>. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, when people see the end of the series, uh, hopefully they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is good. Anything, anything after this would have been, uh, you know, pointless. So we'll see. Gotcha. One of the things I, yeah, I appreciate—that's a secret. He dies, so that's how I can't do anything after issue twenty-five. So ah. I'm, I'm joking. Spoiler alert. <laughs> now, one of the one of the things I appreciate with the creator-owned work that you don't see with the big two, and and a lot of it, I guess, goes back to licensing of characters and perpetual, you know, um, licensing of them. You know, where where they want to be able to. to I guess suck money out of these things until until there's nothing left, and then try and keep going even after the fact. But with the with the creator on stuff, what I appreciate is the fact that n- nothing is sacred, you know. And, and we see that, you know, especially with Walking Dead, where we can get so attached to a certain character, and then boom, the rug gets pulled out from under us, and that character, you know, changes or dies or you know goes away or you know whatever. And the the fact that a lot of the, in my opinion, the better creator on stuff is is the stuff where folks you know, like yourself, where you're not afraid to kind of take chances with these characters and you have a, you have a story to tell and you're going to tell that story as opposed to thinking it in, in the terms of like the bigger machine. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I see that kind of being setting, setting up with, uh, you know, with, with murderer, you know, where, where, you know, characters, 
hopefully if it continues on, you know, a lot of characters floating in and floating out kind of thing going on. Yeah, and that's, you know, uh, that's one of the benefits to creator-owned stuff, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons why creator-owned comics seem to appeal to people who, uh, you know, have been reading comics for a good long time, because, you know, after a certain while, you, uh, you know, the curtain kind of gets pulled back, and you realize that Dr. Octopus is always going to come back, and, uh, you know, Spider-Man's never really going to die, and, you know, creative teams are going to be rotating in and out, and stories are always going to be reset and ignored, and so, you know, no matter how much it seems like there's a plan and how much it seems like things are building up to something, it's not actually building up to anything, and, uh, you know, along the way, there's uh, excellent stories that are done, and definitely entertaining. Everybody still reads those books, and I still read those books, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, create our own comics as a whole offers something uh, a little more unique and I think a little more fulfilling uh, in a long-term reading situation, assuming the book's not going to get canceled. Right, right. Which does happen, so, so, yeah. Well, I see from the clock on the wall, we've taken up our allotted time with you, Mr. Kirkman. I wanted to thank you for your time today. Thank you for your candid uh, answers, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, especially about pilot season. The first issue, Murderer, is already out. Uh, the second issue, Demonic, I believe, ships this month. If I'm not correct. Yes. Thank you a lot for your time today, sir. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks a lot for having me, guys. A lot of fun. <laughs> Well, we hope you enjoyed our interview with Robert Kirkman and our other interview with Bear McCreary. We want to send out thanks to both those gentlemen for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You can check us out at walkingdeadtv.com. You can also check out Half Hour Wasted and The Legion of Dudes, our brother podcasts, at hhwlod.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at WDTVPodcast, and also at LODTweet, or at JordanFRMJersey. That way you'll find out when the shows are out before anybody else. You can check out the Facebook pages for all of our shows. They're very easily searchable on Facebook. Leave us a voicemail. Call 516-468-7912. 516-468-7912. Hey, do you like Daredevil? Well, then you're going to want to check out Speak of the Devil, our other other brother podcast. If you go to walkingdeadtv.com or hhwled.com, look right on the left. There's a link right there to Speak of the Devil. You can subscribe to that on iTunes or directly from the site. As for me, you can find my weekly video comic reviews at youtube.com slash Jordan from Jersey. That's youtube.com slash Jordan from Jersey. Or we post them directly up on hhwlod.com as well. And hey, we're a proud member of the Walking Dead Podcast Network, and the WDPN can be found at forumforgeeks.com. That's right, go to forumforgeeks.com, you're going to find links to about 26 shows right now. Four of them, Walking Dead specific, and we are the Walking Dead Podcast Network. If you want any discussion of Walking Dead, whether you want to hear it on a podcast or you want to discuss that podcast yourself... Forumforgeeks.com is the place to do that. You can also check out a bunch of other podcasts that we're all friends with, and uh, we hope you enjoy them. So for Jim, John, Russ, and Brad, and myself, Jordan from Jersey, remember, when there's no more room in hell and the dead roam the earth, we'll, we'll probably podcast about it, probably, until we die. Um, that's morbid. Have a good week. Have a good week.